Amen. Thank you for that musical reflection. And I want you to realize that there are some hymns that, they're all beautiful, but there are some hymns that are even more beautiful by their title, A Rich Promise. And if you don't know that hymn, you ought to read it again. O love that will not let me go. Don't we need to hear that every day of our lives? Thanks be to God for the hymn writers who reflected on great promises. Good morning and welcome. As I mentioned, I'm Jerry McFarland. Um, I bring you personal greetings from Reverend Adam Bryce. Uh, Adam and I spoke last week. He is assisting me with the work I'm doing at the seminary. But he wanted me especially to say hello to you and to give thanks to you for what the Lord is doing. Many of you uh, know Adam, many of you don't, which is a good testimony to this church that the Lord is continuing to grow you. Please continue to pray for Adam. Uh, he is still grieving uh, deeply over the loss of his sweet bride of 30 years. He lost her six months ago and um, doing well, but hurting deeply. So continue to pray for that dear brother and his work there. Um, <clears throat> I'm a sentimentalist at heart, so coming in this building brought back so many memories for me. As John mentioned, I had the privilege of being a part of the beginning of this place, a meeting in people's homes, <clears throat> talking about the possibility of having a church in Conchahokan, and then going and meeting in a fire hall for a while, and then this building, which was rented. And I remember Adam was saying to me, Jerry, would you pray? We want to pray that God would bring this building to us and look what the Lord has done. So praise be to God, not for you or Adam or the efforts of this church, but for the glory of God who has brought it about. So it's an honor, it's an honor to continue to be here with you as well. Uh, you'll see that the opening, um, the responsive reading is actually the text of the sermon. You can look in your Bibles to follow that, but because of the extent, we're gonna read the whole Psalm of 139 uh, we're going to read that responsibly. That way we'll all see it together, all experience it together, and trust that God would indeed use that well. So I will read the odd verses and you respond in unison with the even as well. So hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness 
is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. <clears throat> I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come again to your living, powerful word. And we ask God that we would indeed not only be hearers of the word, but doers. And we confess we cannot do that apart from your spirit. So living God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, meet with us now as your word is declared. Let it come from you, not me as a messenger simply, but you as the one who empowers these words. God, apply them to our hearts. We all need the word of God. So bless both the reading and the preaching of your word. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, again, welcome, and we look at a familiar, if you're not familiar with this psalm, you should be. It's a rich picture of God, who he is, what he does, and how that impacts people's lives. But as you'll see by way of the title, Hide or Seek, um, I'm playing off of that idea of hide and seek. Have you ever played hide and seek? Yes, you have. Let's admit it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but you've played that game. And all of us, either in childhood or sometimes in adulthood, who hasn't played that? I personally thought I'm over that in my adulthood. I thought I'm done with that for a while until my granddaughter decided she wanted to play that with me <laughs> a lot in our house. So she would come over, pop up, it's time to play hide and seek. I'm going to hide, you're going to find me. I think, to be honest, I think she loved the power coming from the fact that she knew I couldn't find her. I wouldn't be able to find her. 
And I would get exasperated. I'd be walking around the house looking for her to no avail. I'd go around the house calling her name again and again. Even when I knew where she was, <laughs> I was calling her name. I couldn't not find her. And I didn't want to, here's, here's a lesson, I didn't want to find her too fast. <laughs> because if I did, that would unleash a shower of tears. Or worse than that, that stern look you get from your granddaughter when you didn't play it the way she wanted you to. You don't do that. You play it the way she wants. Think about it. What, what is it about us psychologically that at times makes us want to hide? Whether it's just this game of hiding and surprising or perhaps avoiding people. There are all kinds of situations and relationships we would like to hide from to escape, be it pain or, or confrontation or even shame. I just want to hide. Do you ever want to do that? I think in the Bible, one of the saddest, but yet I would suggest at the same time, one of the more humorous examples of this occurs in Genesis chapter 3. If you're familiar with the history of God's Word, that's when Adam and Eve, who were innocent, fell. When sin entered the world. But listen to how it happened. This is when Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan. That they could be like God and even live independently of God. And Moses records how that happened. Think back with me. What was that like? Moses puts it this way. Quote, and they, Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. You can almost feel and understand Adam and Eve, to paraphrase, you can almost hear them saying, hey, did you hear that? I think the Lord God Almighty is coming. Let's hide. Let's hide from him so he doesn't find us. Isn't that a tragic understanding? Let's go somewhere where God can't find us. Friends, what we have here in Psalm 139, I believe is not a depressing reminder of God's presence but rather it's a beautiful declaration, a beautiful declaration of the character of God and the call of God for all of us in all of life. So I would suggest as we look into this, have this question in the back of your mind as we look at the canvas of this psalm. What happens to someone? What happens to someone when they finally understand just how much God is with them, how much God knows them, and how much God loves them. What would happen to somebody who really gets that? What would it affect their lives? In what way would that happen? This psalm is, I think, <clears throat> another living picture of someone who has caught a rich glimpse of the character of God and what that does to the heart and life of a person. 
And you'll see that, for example, the first 16 verses we'll look at here really are all about God and in particular how well he knows us. There is no hide and seek with God, is there? He knows you extremely well. Then the rest of the psalm we'll see is it's a personal description of David as to the effect that that knowledge of God had on him. And I hope you, you felt as well as heard this progression here. It seems that, that the more David thought about how well God knew him, the more he realized that God was in some way mysteriously and beautifully seeking him. It wasn't just him seeking God, but God was really after me. That would make all the difference in the world in David and his relationship with his God. The Reformation that we celebrate today, historically, <clears throat> this day, that Reformation brought about some powerful things, but nothing more powerful than the renewal and the return to the authority of the Word of God. This is how we know God. This is how we understand our God. But it also is a renewal to the character of our God and the work of salvation in Jesus alone. And a central doctrine of the Reformation was really the focus on the holiness of God, just how pure and righteous and holy he was, but also on the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all things. You know, volumes have been written regarding the characteristic of the sovereignty of God. And, and there are two terms that I think are used to capture uh, this aspect and, and reflect it in this particular psalm. And those terms are simply this, that the issue of God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. Try dropping those words in your neighborhood coffee shop and see what kind of reaction you get. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. No one psalm or no book can fully reveal or explain the attributes or character of God. But in this psalm, David is showing us two very important things to know and to remember about Almighty God. In the first six verses, <clears throat> what we see David, uh, what David means when he says, God is omniscient. God is omniscient. That simply means that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. There is nothing hidden from him. This creator of all things is also the sustainer of all things. Nothing is outside of his knowledge. God knows about everything in all his creation. That's a theme throughout all the scriptures. Listen to other Psalms that declare it. Psalm 104 says this, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Or Psalm 92, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. And Jesus himself would declare 
something profound about the God that he served. He says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. How well does God know his creation? Even when a bird drops to its death. Even when a hair falls from a head. That's incomprehensible. That's almighty God. Abraham Kuyper, another influential theologian, says it this way, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that's mine. That's mine. Everything in his creation belongs to God. So we see this broad understanding how sovereign God is, but don't lose sight. Look now at how personally God knows David. This description, friends, is is not a general proclamation as to how God knows all things, but it's extremely personal as to the depth of which God knows David. The very first verse sets the tone for the rest. Did you see that, O Lord... You have searched me and known me. The God he is talking to is the God who knows everything about him. No hide and seek here. And I hope you see there are two things David is clearly aware of in terms of what God knows about him. And yet, please keep in mind, this wasn't a crisis of faith that brought him to this point. But rather, it's a culmination of his own walk with God over the years. This is what David is celebrating. I'm so excited about how well he knows me. Look at what David knows personally about how well God knows him. One is that God literally knows where he is physically. And what he is doing, whether he's standing, whether he's sitting, whether he's lying down, whether he's getting up, he knows exactly where David is and what he's doing. Friends, you see, be mindful that God, God in many ways is just as interested in what is going on physically as he is in our own hearts and lives. He is that aware Oh, but the other thing David knows uncomfortably well is that God knows his thoughts and words even before he opens his mouth. Look again at verse 4. Haunting reminder, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know, on a human level, think about it. You and I are, we're pretty good at concealing or hiding our thoughts from others, aren't we? Maybe you're not an expert, but you do that. I do that. I know how to control and manipulate what I want people to hear or know, but not what I'm actually thinking. But when it comes to God, you can run, but you can't hide. (laughs) He knows exactly, right now, he knows what you're thinking, where you are, what's going on in your head. There is no place where he's not aware in your mind what's happening. 
And friends, the sad thing is sometimes we are so good at hiding things from others that we become trapped in our own world. Yet as we see in verse 6, David actually found this knowledge of God wonderful, even beyond comprehension. God, your ways are unbelievable, hard to understand, but beautiful. You know everything about me. One commentator put it this way, quote, we cannot comprehend God. All is wonder and mystery, but we can apprehend what he has ordained and revealed. So we see this omniscience of God, and David is experiencing that personally. But the second quality we see here that we mentioned earlier in this first half of the psalm is God's omnipresence, his omnipresence. That simply means that God is all-seeing or that he is everywhere. David seems to be overwhelmed with one overwhelming principle. There is absolutely no place he can go that God will not be present. I can't go anywhere where God is not there. Again, there seems to be two aspects of this location, David suggests. One is anywhere in all of God's created world. The heights of heaven or the depths of hell. The darkest place I could find or a place of painful brightness where it would be hard to see anything. Where can I go that you are not there? But I trust you see it takes an even more private and intimate place for David. Look again at verses 13 through 16. David's aware that God was present in his mother's womb. He was there when, when he was being formed. It's a powerful, that's a powerful and real picture for us to understand. The God-ordained value of the unborn. Friends, it's not a casual thing we discard. It is life. It is where God is working physically, intimately in creating life that would be in the image of Him. It's not a concept. It's a reality. And David is so aware that God was somehow in my mother's womb present. And he knew that God was somehow mysteriously not only forming him in that womb, but did you catch it? He recorded his name in a book and even determined the number of his days. Well, please don't leave this section, this first half, without seeing a strategic emphasis David is making. He is convinced that wherever God is, God is not looking on from a distance and keeping tabs. Did you see the phrase, David says, wherever it is, you are there. He's not a distant God in the background. God, wherever I go, you're not out there looking down. You are somehow mysteriously right where I am. God is present in the room 
or the womb. That would be a precious theme for this king of Israel. And that would find its fulfillment in King Jesus as well. We'll see that the last half of this psalm now moves on to the appreciation of the character of his God. To the call of God on his life. What difference must it make for someone to say, God knows everything and God is everywhere. What difference should that make? In this call on his life, I think David reflects again two qualities that, that should be for us all. But the pivotal verse in understanding that is verse 17, I would suggest to you, where David is making a powerful statement. Listen to what he says. How precious, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. He's overwhelmed in delight with how well God knows him. He's actually thinking about these qualities of his God and how beautiful they really are. So I think the first quality I believe you see reflected is in the fact that David so lovingly was overwhelmed with God that he wants to know God more. This knowledge of how much God knows him didn't drive him away. It actually made him say, I want to know you more. You know me so well, and the more I hunger to know you, the more I understand life itself. The more he thinks about him, the more he wants to know him, and, and he wants others to know that too. It's a major biblical theme, friends, of the importance of pursuing God in his knowledge and in his grace. A familiar passage is in Jeremiah when Jeremiah says this, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Or look at the life of the Apostle Paul. If you follow him, even towards the end, he says, I'm kind of forgetting what's behind. I'm pressing on. Why? Because I want to know Christ." I want to know the power of the resurrection. I don't want to be just associated or familiar. I want to know my living God and the power of his resurrection. He couldn't get enough of God, even towards the end of his life. A second quality I think David reflects is not only his desire to know his God, but I hope you see, but to be known by God. You won't find a clearer picture of this than in the last two verses. And if you have not done this, you should memorize it. I'm not kind of beating on you as a pastor, but please, if you haven't memorized much scripture, you ought to memorize this. It's a convicting and powerful picture. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. When I used to work with young people, I used to describe that this way. God, you're saying, God, here's a flashlight. Go in every room of my life. Don't let me hide in that corner. Shine it. God, search me. Don't leave me to myself. Find me out. Test my thoughts. Let me come to you. Let me know you. 
David knew this was ultimately a work of God's Spirit. He could not know God or be known by God without the very presence of God. The cry of his heart was for the Lord to search him, know him, lead him. This God who is omniscient and omnipresent was a God who loved him and he knew it. So how do we understand, how do we apply, how do we work out this aspect of this great God and his knowledge of us generally but intimately? I think one clear application for us, brothers and sisters, is to ask this question honestly, this hide-and-seek question. Are you hiding or are you seeking when it comes to God? Are you wanting to live two worlds? Are you wanting to try to find a way to, to control how much God is aware and working? Or are you saying, search me, oh God. Please, I beg you, have your way. You can't live in two worlds, can you? And we need to be a people who are working through this cry for God to know us, to know us that we might know him. David knew all too well how he spent seasons trying to hide rather than being true to his God. He was trying to hide his lie of adultery and murder. Psalm 51 is a direct result of that sin of that hiding he attempted to do, and the brokenness he experienced. It's a powerful hymn of confession. Yet what strikes me so clearly, if you go back and read Psalm 51, if you read specifically what David was crying out for, David said, God, take anything in my life away. I deserve rejection. I deserve condemnation. I deserve everything that you would give me, but I beg you, take everything, but don't take what? Do you know what he said? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, I beg you. I deserve to lose my family, everything I have, but I beg you, please don't leave me. I can't imagine my life without God, who I don't deserve. Have mercy on me. Another king had a similar experience, but for all the wrong reasons. King Jesus had never known a day without being in the presence of his Father. Think about it. Jesus was fully known by God and knew him fully as well. When everyone else failed him, when life was bordering on the unbearable, Jesus always, he always had his Father's presence. It's killing me, but I can handle anything because my God, my Father is still with me. But then something happened on that cross. What happened on that cross? He tasted something he never imagined. It felt like his father literally walked away from him. And my God, my God, why have you left me? 
I don't deserve this. I don't understand it. But it feels like you're gone. I'm in darkness where you are not. My friends, he tasted, hear me, he tasted something for you and me that we will never have to fear again. His death and resurrection have guaranteed not only forgiveness, but for the very presence of your Father in heaven. Oh, many of us struggle as Christians, but here a reminder from another theologian who put it this way, quote, men and women can inflict no greater injury upon themselves than to imagine that the Spirit of God is far away from them. Yes, you and I have a right to be rejected by God by the way you hide, the way I hide, the way I lie, the way you lie, all that stuff. But if you trust in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, He'll never, never leave you. Perhaps the greatest conclusion of the gospel could be seen in Paul's definitive declaration in Romans 8. We heard some of that read, but go back and read the rest of it. Paul says, because of Jesus and your trust in him, there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves you. So my challenge to you, fellow believers, get back into the habit more aggressively of seeking the Lord. Why? Because He really knows you. <laughs> because He is really with you. Because He really loves you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to Him alone be glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Our good and gracious Father in heaven, thank you that you indeed are all-knowing and all-present. But God, we want to know that personally. We don't want to just affirm it academically or theologically. We want to know our God fully. And you have given us the fullness of yourself in your Son. And those of us who say we know Jesus can declare we know Almighty God, for to know Christ is to know God. To be trusting in Him is to be loved by God. So, Father, by your Spirit, would you bring a holy restlessness to all of us? We would not be satisfied until we see you in glory and we would spend what days we have left pursuing you, seeking you. Oh God, do your work in our hearts and lives. Even now we pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.